0: Contemplation is?
1: Not for sissies.
0: <laughs> so I didn't see that coming.
1: All right. um. The purpose of contemplation is in the presence of a loving and compassionate and, co- and coherent divine presence. To patiently and humbly strip away the veils that hide us from ourselves and hide the world from our sight.
0: I'm Tom Bushlack, and welcome to the second episode of Contemplate This, a new podcast with a focus on conversations on contemplation and compassionate social action. The idea for this podcast is for us to learn and gain inspiration from those who have committed to the contemplative life in the many forms and expressions that that can take, and to living compassionately toward others and towards their communities out of that commitment. We can learn a lot through books on contemplative practices and compassionate living, but I find that we're often moved by personal stories. So one of my goals here is to capture and share those personal stories that can inspire and guide us on our own contemplative journeys of transformation, growth, and compassionate living. This interview is with Cynthia Berjolt. She's an ordained Episcopalian priest and beloved teacher of contemplative forms of practice in the Christian tradition. She's a founder of the Wisdom Way of Knowing, teacher in the Wisdom School, and now a core teacher at the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's been a prolific author of nine books, notably her intro to Centering Prayer called Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, and her more recent The Heart of Centering Prayer, Non-Dual Christianity in Theory and in Practice. Cynthia is considered by many, myself included, to be one of the central teachers in the renewal of Christian contemplative prayer in general, and Centering Prayer in particular. I think it's safe to say that her work is so interesting, because it is deeply rooted in her knowledge and study of the tradition, while also being highly original. She discusses in this interview how she brings her unique blend of experiences from her time with Quakers and Benedictines to her study of Gurdjieff, who I'll mention more in a second, and then her eventual introduction to and contribution to the growth of Centering Prayer in the last four decades or so. There's a lot of wisdom to chew on in this interview, and one that has stuck with me in particular is her use of the phrase, where are your feet? She notes that her early teachers asked her this question in order to remind her that contemplation is not about flights of mystical fancy so much as it is about awakening to the present moment in the physical body. And I think one of the things that those of us committed to the renewal of contemplative prayer in the Christian tradition are highly attuned to is this need to be grounded in and in tune with our bodies in order to awaken to the presence of God and to the infinite divine compassion that's available in every moment. So I've found this very simple question, where are your feet, to be very helpful for keeping me grounded, literally, (laughs) where my feet and my body meet the ground and the earth. Let me add a quick note about Gurdjieff, whom Cynthia mentions and some of our listeners might not be familiar with. Uh, from Cynthia's website, she describes Gurdjieff, uh, who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century, as, quote, a visionary Armenian-born spiritual teacher who became convinced that there were ancient schools of wisdom still in existence that preserved the true roadmap to our purpose as human beings and our responsibilities in the greater web of planetary life. His teaching might be characterized as an early run-up on what would be nowadays called mindfulness training attached to a highly original cosmology. Finally, the feedback and response to the first podcast, the interview with Father Richard Rohr, has been very positive and supportive, so thank you for that. And I'd like to ask you for your support for the growth of this podcast. First, if you are enjoying it, I would appreciate your help in sharing it with others, word of mouth, social media, other avenues that come to mind for you. And second, I'm committed to keeping this podcast and some of the other media on my website at thomasjbushlack.com available for free. Um, I don't want to require anyone to, to pay for some of this basic content or to hide some of it behind a paywall, and so I'm offering these podcasts freely. There are, however, costs associated with creating and hosting these media where they can be accessed easily by everyone, and so I'd like to ask that if you are enjoying this podcast and if you're willing and able to contribute to consider making a free will offering. And you can do this totally secure um, on my website at thomasjbushlack.com. And Bushlack is spelled B-U-S-H-L-A-C-K. So thomasjbushlack.com at the main page or thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. And I leave it to you to consider what this media is worth to you. And if everyone just contributed even a dollar or two or more, Uh, this will allow me to keep all of this media up and running. So thanks again, considering uh, what this might be worth to you or even thinking about paying it forward to others who might enjoy it in the future. All right, with that in mind, uh, let's get right to my interview with Cynthia Berzolt. First of all, thank you, Cynthia, for agreeing to be here with us, uh, with me right now, but with others later. (laughs) Um, Really appreciate your time and uh, generosity and what I'd like to do um, is start by, I think some listeners will probably be familiar with your work through writings or workshops or things like that, others might not. So uh, do you want to just sort of introduce yourself to start and uh, tell us where you are in the world and then we'll go backwards from there.
1: Okay, well, physically, I'm in the world. I'm in a remote corner of Maine, the beautiful lobster fishing village of Stonington, Maine, where it's uh, blowing through something like 40 knots today as, wow. as fall gives when gives rise to winter. Hmm. Uh, uh, in terms of what you might call the kind of professional and journey track, uh, I'm an Episcopal priest. I've been an Episcopal priest since 1979. And uh was brought up you know in a quaker and then benedictine monastic uh stream oh wow so i had a good gravitation towards what i would call the best in the contemplative tradition mm-hmm. and, uh, eventually found uh found my way to to a few streams uh thomas keating where i learned centering prayer uh that was back in the late 80s early 90s uh the gurdjieff work uh or the the fourth way the sort of early mindfulness work of that's uh left such an imprint on the american hmm. spiritual scene
0: now that, i associate gurdjieff with the enneagram is that yep
1: yep yep not in exactly the way that the enneagram uses the enneagram but he was okay. the one who launched it in the west he was the first one to bring the symbol to the west in the 1920s
0: Right. Okay, that's the part I remember. Yeah, sort of. Well right. so <laughs> yeah. I
1: worked in his teaching, which is called familiarly the work, uh for mm. about ten years, along with Christian contemplative practice. And that formed the sort of brew, the the weaving that that uh my kind of uh I don't know whether it would be called distinctive angle on things, but it's a little bit different from either camp. It's uh uh, but it's where a lot of the elements that enter my own contemplative teaching that are not classically there in the in the Christian mystical t- tradition come from. It mm. veers in the direction of consciousness and mindfulness uh, a lot more than much of the contemplative teaching.
2: Sure. So that's
1: that. And I I had the great fortune of working for about three and a half years with a a monk, a hermit monk at the monastery at Stomas, uh, who uh who had done this synthesis himself sort of on his own and taught it to me and formed me in it. And after he died in the end of ninety five, uh, I sort of got spat out of the nest to to teach and to begin writing. Mm. So I've got about uh nine books now i think it's eight or nine or nine or ten somewhere in there Mm -hmm. nothing like what richard's been doing but uh a a little substantial pile Uh,
0: well yeah i don't think i don't think eight to ten books is anything to scoff at
1: (laughs) well and it's exploring always the the christian contemplative tradition from the perspective of inner awakening Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Wow, okay, so you kind of already went where I wanted to go, but something that I note in the way you're weaving your story, and and maybe this is why your your teaching appeals to people, is I think a lot of people, even who might really identify strongly with a tradition like Christian, find themselves um, drawn to other contemplative traditions and the wisdom that they find in it. And, I mean, that resonates with my own experience of feeling like my own practice has become a little idiosyncratic. But not in a not in a kind of self-serving way, but more in terms of what I've, we've been exposed to forms our practice. And that sounds like it's part of your own experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I one of the big uh, one of the big things that sort of parted the water for me was all the way back in the 1980s when Jacob Needleman wrote a book called Lost Christianity, and hmm. he said in one point in that book that you can no more ask christians to follow the teachings of jesus reliably then you could ask stones to sprout wings and fly to the sea <laughs> and that corresponded so much with what i'd actually observed at that point having worked in churches that this teaching that encamps around a radical transmission of love uh, at the core uh, from the from its master jesus uh mm-hmm. tends to express itself over and over again in very rigid institutional structures that have an exclusivistic and monological basis to them. And I said, what went wrong with it? And Needleman put me on for the first time that there was a certain power of attention that wasn't, that had to be wielded and had to be brought into play before you could stop living in fantasy and daydreams and mystical language and theological castles to actually being able to think your, move move from thinking your way out of a paper bag to seeing what needed to be done, was a huge step. Mm. And, and I could see the truth in that, that with a sort of scattered and distracted and narrative driven uh, sense of identity, the, the rhetoric, emotional manipulation, saturated, saturated theological language of Christianity,
3: mm-hmm. that it was
1: a set for exactly what you were getting. Mm. And so it was my interest in what is attention? How does it come under voluntary control? Uh, how does a different state of consciousness actually get stabilized in a person? It was those kinds of questions that that sent me uh, searching for supplementary paths because they're, they're questions that are almost never directly addressed in Christianity.
0: Yeah, you happen to be exposed to it, it for some reason. Yeah like yeah. coming to your workshop or, or something like that. Yeah.
2: Exactly. In a random
0: book on a shelf somewhere. Uh, yeah. Well, And that, I think that also speaks to another piece of what appeals to this contemplative tradition to people today is that there is a lot of, um, you know, they talk about millennials are very uh, sensitive to authenticity and any sense of agenda being imposed. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel that in their experience of Christianity, but they, they love a certain element of their faith, and that tradition that they want. And I think this, the contemplative path, uh, provides a way to um, to stay in that, in that more grounded sort of situation of faith, without having to kind of just give your will over to authority in a negative way. I mean, I'm not opposed to authority entirely, but...
1: Yeah, well, the one thing that the contemplative thing does straight up is that it cuts through language. Yeah, and it's in it's in the languaging that Christianity gets into trouble.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. Because it's uh, not only because of what it says and the way it says says it, but the, by by reason of the kind of brain structures and uh, and tracking systems that get called into being when language becomes your basis for exploring reality.
0: Yeah, and that gets into kind of our left brain language systems, right brain symbolic kind of deeper levels. Um might yeah. want to...
1: but even beyond that, beyond both parts of the of the brain into a direct seeing. Yeah. That's not language based, but uh but is really operates on a different wiring of consciousness that uh that allows you not to have to split up the th- playing field and tell stories and do endless narratives to uh mm. to get your way there.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay, well we're only a couple minutes in and we're like really deep already. This is awesome. But I, so I want to back up uh, speaking of narratives um, to ca- capture a little bit. I mean, so you outlined three or four things that have come together. The Quaker Benedictine, the the, the work uh, with Gurdjieff, your relationship with Thomas Keating and another hermit from Snowmass. Um, can we actually go? So I'm curious to start sort of at the beginning, like where where did you grow up? How were you exposed to Quakers and Benedictines? Um, and I, I come out of the Benedictine exposure as well. I'm an oblate up at St. John's Abbey. Um, but so can you tell us a little bit about that, like where you grew up and then how was it? Was there a lot of spirituality in your upbringing or did you kind of gravitate towards it?
1: Well, I I was raised in the in the Philadelphia area, which is uh, sort of the seedbed of Quakerism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, although I wasn't raised a Quaker, I was sent to Quaker schools. Mm. And there, from the very very early days, I was uh, exposed to uh, Quaker meeting for worship, and in the and in the classic Philadelphia tradition, that's unprogrammed meetings. In other words, you just gather in silence until the spirit starts moving in people and inspires them to uh, get up and offer something in words or occasionally a song mm. so it was in the school and we had meeting once a week for we had a whole bunch of about sixty five kids ranging in age from five to twelve that mm. came into meeting and just the first very, very deep and dazzling experiences of of the divine presence in silence. Mm.
0: So how well, old was, were you? You were in grade school, like early. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That wow. was basically five to twelve. So wow. it was
0: wow. yeah.
1: it was very, very formative and it it cut through and established a lot of things for me. Like that first of all, that contemplation isn't anything fancy, it's utterly uh primordial. Mm-hmm. That nobody ever taught us how to be silent. It was just assumed that this was uh this was people's native grounds. Uh and so native rather than that we we've,
0: we've forgotten about.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and the way it wound up in the religious and traditions, contemplation became the highest kind of apex of a tower that was almost impossible to ascend. Uh,
0: Certainly so knowing, in the medieval Western paradigm, yes. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's for sure. That's for sure. So uh, the simple ground of silence and uh, the sense of y- you could always find God by just sort of moving into the silence of your heart was a very, very important clues to me. Hmm. So I uh, I was always interested in religion. We when I by the time I got to high school, we were in a wonderful school that had required religion courses, not not sort of catechism. Uh it was a non denominational high school, but they thought that religion was part of the cultural legacy of humankind and that we needed to know something about it.
3: Wow, that's
1: so, rare. <laughs> it's very rare, so we yeah. studied the Bible as literature in grades nine and ten, and then in grades eleven and twelve, a gifted religious teacher exposed us to all of what was the new religious new well, the the best of religious thought of the day we read uh Bonhoeffer we read Paul Tillich we read the niebuhr's uh Ian Barber we read lots of you know the okay. real. Simone Weil, we were reading really, really good stuff that was right at the time when those that those final receptors in the brain are opening up to the infinite anyway. Yeah, I so love I, I love that stuff, and I, I really plunged full into the, um, the metaphysical rabbit hole. Hmm. Uh, but then when I went to college by a weird set of uh, circumstances, the school I went to didn't have a religious studies program. And The closest they could come was philosophy, and I had detested philosophy from the start. So, uh, <laughs> so I wound up as a literature major, and uh, long story short, it was through literature that I got into medieval literature. Through medieval literature, I got into medieval liturgy. Through medieval liturgy, which I encountered through medieval drama, I got more interested in the great monastic traditions that... That the liturgy and the drama was spawned in,
0: Which and something I that tracks um, Thomas Merton's early story in some interesting yeah. ways. Yeah, in
1: some very interesting ways. We yeah. were doing kind of parallel things, except I don't think he ever got into medieval drama.
0: Well, maybe um, not drama, but certainly yeah. philosophy and, and literature, and then and then into the mystics. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I had the great luck of having a uh, a mentor when I was in uh, graduate school, who was the, the rector of the Episcopal Parish at the University of Pennsylvania, where I went, who was both a third order Franciscan mm. and a, uh, a pol- political activist. Okay. So he combined the, the package in a wonderful way. We had our first experiences with monastic preaching. He would bring down his cohorts from the little portion priory in Long Island to give us uh, August Sunday, tea, talking, he introduced us to retreats. I went to my first monastery, again, the Franciscan priory in New York, uh, at his auspices. Okay. So that's how I began to get into it. And then, of course, when I was doing medieval drama and, and the liturgical studies, that landed me knee-deep knee in the Benedictine tradition, because the the Benedictine monastery in France, Benoit sur Loire, is actually the home of where medieval drama uh, was born, right out of the liturgy on the Easter Vigil in the, about the ninth century. Oh wow! So I I began to know, you know, the Benedictine monasteries through this tie-in, and
2: yeah.
1: I actually was at St. John's. I'm a, you know, I was an ecumenical fellow there in 1981. But, uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: I couldn't Cataloging remember. the
1: man- manuscripts in their uh, monastic manuscript library.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the Benedictine tradition sort of percolated in, and uh, and the and that brought me to the Episcopal priesthood because there wasn't so you much. Did,
0: you were doing yeah. some kind of graduate work before seminary, is that right? In yeah. Like, yeah okay. mm-hmm. And that I was in literature in, or in drama. What was that, in?
1: that was in? By that time, it was medieval literature and drama.
0: Okay. So then. Then, yeah, can you walk us through, how did you move from the graduate studies to thinking, all right, I'm going to be called to some kind of an ordained ministry?
1: Well, um, the during the time in graduate school, I'd always been interested in performance, and I didn't seem right that these beautiful pieces of medieval music drama should just be left in scholarly libraries to study. I said, well, what if we we get together a medieval drama troupe and actually perform them? Mm -hmm. Uh, The New York Pro Musica had already broken ground with that back at that time. And so we went looking for a place that would be suitable to to form a troupe and perform these plays. And right down the street from the University of Pennsylvania was at the time the Philadelphia Divinity School. Hmm. And it had this gorgeous chapel, you know, about 90 feet long and 100 feet high, you know, just spires. It was one of those ultimately uh, Episcopal Gothic buildings that got built just before the Depression.
2: Mm-hmm. And I,
1: I went in and said, Oh my goodness, this is so gorgeous. That I, uh, motivated by some fire, I walked right into the dean's office and told him that what his seminary really needed was a workshop in medieval drama. And that <laughs> if, they gave, if they gave us the church, Uh, And let me take one course a semester. I would work for free teaching them the liturgical arts. Oh, wow. So they they said, well, what do we have to lose? And uh, so that's how I got started. And uh, so I was taking one course a semester uh, as a sort of additional extra seminarian in lieu of getting a salary. And that was just about the time that all the kind of heady stuff was really coming to the fore in the Episcopal Church with the ordination of women. Mm. and basically if you could chew gum and shoot straight back in those airs and you were a woman they'd ordain you <laughs> <laughs> it's toughened up a lot now i don't think i'd ever be accepted for ordination oh. in, my, in my present state of being but back <laughs> in those days and, uh, they said oh she's literate she can speak in sentences she doesn't get stage fight in the pulpit let's ordain her sure. so uh, that's how it happened
0: well and you uh so there's a thread, there's, well, there's a lot of threads to pick up there, but one that stood out to me was the importance of beauty in being drawn into the contemplative experience. So it sounds like that was a real part of it for you. Can you, I don't know, is there a way you can articulate the importance of that? Uh,
1: I mean, I mean that Wilka uh, has this wonderful line in the Duino Elegy somewhere. He says that beauty is only the beginning of a terror we can just scarcely bear Mm. and and it always seemed to me that the place where the mystical burns with the real blue of the flame is right at that place where where form is straining to contain the formless
3: Mm. Mm -hmm. and the
1: two are in a deep and rapturous and intense embrace that that expresses itself in a beauty that just sears the soul Mm. and so, uh, so, I always gravitated to that edge where the the deepest things that that we're about in creation are are really unarticulatable, yeah,
2: but it,
1: it's in beauty that mysticism I think finds its legs and its wings,
2: yeah, so
1: it was uh that was always a a very, very compelling ground for me even in literature I wasn't particularly interested in documentaries or biographies or anything I went right to the poetry the mystical poet and it was George Manley Hopkins and Dylan Thomas and John Donne and all those guys God knows Blake that uh that just you know blew my hair back
0: yeah well and when you can quote Rilke from memory it's clearly soaked in there
1: (laughs) one line come on. yeah
0: but man he's got some one-liners that you can pull out Wow. So, okay, so that, um, just to kind of keep going back to these threads, because I think it's interesting. So you've got the Quaker and the Benedictine. Now, where did your work in with uh, Gurdjieff and his tradition kind of come in there? Was that?
1: Well, actually, I was introduced to it at St. John's uh, Abbey. By whom? Well, by one of my professors who, uh, one of my colleagues who was teaching in the theology department, a good friend of mine, she's not there anymore, and okay. she's not a monk, um,
3: okay.
1: and she tossed this into my car one day saying, well, I saw the word miraculous in the title of the book, and I thought you might be interested. It was In Search of the Miraculous, which is the starting book for the Gurdjieff work by P.D. Ospinsky. Okay. And uh, I had already read Needleman at that point. I referred to that a little bit earlier in yeah, his yeah. Uh, Christianity. So Gurdjieff was already on my radar screen. And when I sat down and read this book, it was like being struck by thunderbolts. It was like Josiah finding the scroll in the Old Testament, the scroll of the prophets.
3: Hmm.
1: Everything rang so manifestly true.
3: Hmm. So
1: I thought, you know, I need to find a group and work with this stuff. And they made it very hard because they're they're a classic esoteric school where you don't make it easy Mm. access. Yeah. Uh, Not not because the teaching is secretive, but because the student has to get beyond the client mentality. Yeah. You know, it's like unless the chicken can peck itself out of the egg, it doesn't have the strength to live as a bird.
0: Yeah. Well, as Benedict, you know, put it in the original rule, uh, you know, make them wait at the door for a couple of days to see if they're yep. really serious. <laughs>
1: well, that's exactly how it was. And yeah. I literally waited at doors for several days before they decided I, I was serious enough and mm. suited me in. Yeah. Uh, that grew up largely out of the frustration with the, uh, what Arthur Lovejoy had once beautifully named in his book, The Great Chain of Being. He talked about the emotional pathos of Christianity. Mm which is a particular way of working language and working theology so that it hits emotional buttons rather than strictly rational ones. Uh, And he said that with this kind of an approach and an attitude, uh, you're going to find a hard time, uh, you know, not getting slightly overwrought and uh, non-impartial portraits. And that rang so true to me uh, that the, The skills being offered in three-centered awareness and bringing all centers of perception online, uh, of noticing when you were stuck in your heads, of noticing when you were stuck in commentary, Uh, one of the one-liners from the work, uh, behind personality uh, stands essence, behind essence stands real I, and behind real I stands God. Mm -hmm. That kind of core work uh, you know, axiom really spoke to me about the whole journey I had explored up to this point that, that so much of life went on at the level of the personality, the and the artificial and conditioned personality at that.
0: Yeah. And some it, some might call that the false self or the
1: yeah, the, the, the false ego self, self,
0: the constructed social self. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it varies a little bit more because it's uh all self is actually constructed. Well yeah <laughs> really 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 down and not all constructions are false and so i think it's true
2: yeah i
1: think it's a little bit simplistic to divide it into true self and false self when they're still at the same level
3: yeah and equate
1: true self with essence or more authenticity but they're both kind of derived from running the same program Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it's where this real I stands or that what a lot of the tradition would call witnessing self that I could see was the beginning of freedom and truth and impartiality in Christianity, yeah. and I was just dying to to mm-hmm. find it so the work the work gave me a good strong uh boot camp in that, yeah. and allowed me to see with grilling uh clarity how stuck I was uh yeah. in my narrative in my stories in my drama in my elaborate uh you know sort of Prospero's castles of construction <laughs> that they yeah. just you know, that they just love to manipulate and manipulate and manipulate in the name of piety and sanctimony. Yeah.
0: Reminds me a little bit of that emphasis on kind of um, radical honesty in 12 step programs. That yeah. you're not going to get any freedom uh, unless you're really willing to kind of step back from the, the meta narrative that's running all the time and realize that that's not real <laughs> with a capital okay. R.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I began to get some real, uh, real tools in my toolkit to begin to confront that, to begin to notice when I was lost in my blarney again, uh, mm-hmm. wandering around uh, in a kind of incestuous feedback loop where your narrative creates your sense of selfhood and your sense of selfhood creates your narrative
0: mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. just keep
1: meeting each other and you don't even see that the whole thing is a construction running in your brain.
0: Yeah, that's uh it's a powerful moment. So I'm I'm also interested in um kind of the, the practical tidbits about how you start seeing that narrative happening or that feedback loop. There's one there's a I think you said somewhere in there something about a three centered awareness. Yeah. I'm curious. I, I think I could project what I think that is, but I'd rather hear you talk about it. <laughs>
1: well this is one of the the fundamental kind of axioms of the Gurdjieff teaching that says that we have three complete discrete meaning separate but hopefully interrelated systems mm-hmm. one being the intellectual center of the mind
3: mm-hmm. which runs
1: its own operating system at its own vibrational speed uh, according to its own algorithms
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then the perception of the emotional center which for him is not identical to the heart, they overlap, but he uses the term emotional center, Mm -hmm. which is the perception through empathetic resonance that's carried basically in your neurons and your, in your nervous system, kind of, if anywhere, centered in the solar plexus. And then finally, the, the moving center, which for him is not the gut like it is in Enneagram teaching and in modern parlance today, but is the intelligence of movement uh, Mm. is the thing that allows you to mimic an accent or walk down a set of stairs without having to look at where each step is or to ride a bicycle or ski down a hill
2: okay Uh, yeah
1: it's very very important particularly in gesture because it's the language of prostration it's the language of movement it's the whole kind of symbolic embodied language where much of the inner meaning of the hardest concepts of Christianity actually lie, like what mm. oblation is, what adoration is, sure. what surrender. You can't get these in the mind because the mind is running the wrong program to understand them.
0: Well, that's interesting. So, that speaks to the importance of well, you, gesture or the way we move in yeah, liturgy right. as well. Why that's, I remember it was a monk at St. John's who first kind of turned me on to that idea that that, that in in and of itself is formative in a in a different way than, you know, the of course in the West we're we're focused almost exclusively on the intellectual text based okay. kind of learning. Okay.
1: One of my favorite stories about that was in Anthony Bloom's, uh, one of his books, you know, the great Russian archbishop, and he tells a story of a young man coming to visit him saying, I have this problem. I have no faith. How can anybody believe this stuff? The Nicene Creed is ridiculous. It's an insult. (laughs) So the abbot looks at him in his eyes, Abba Anthony, and uh, sees that he's yearning for something to happen. He's not just coming in to to deliver a ranch. Yeah. Uh, So he says go home and do a hundred full prostrations for a day and come back and see me Mm. so the guy did it and a month later he came back and he really had found his faith
2: Mm. because
1: the actual act of taking your position on the floor as is required in an orthodox prostration putting your head down sensing the earth beneath you holding sensing the the comfort in that position of humility Mm. all those things had allowed him to understand in a way that you just can't understand with the mind, which runs the program of perception through differentiation.
3: Mm.
1: So so the idea is that all these systems need to be present. Uh, I would say that I, I explain centering prayer to people. One of the things that makes the way I teach it a little bit different is that I explain it in the language of gesture. And mm. before we even talk about consenting to the presence and action of God or any of the sort of languaging that goes with it, we study the gesture of letting go. We mm-hmm. study the gesture of release, and we practice the, the the difference between the gesture of release, the gesture of clinging or hanging on,
3: mm-hmm. and the gesture
1: of renouncing or pushing away. Huh. And we we practice these so that people can begin to find their way by gesture to what they're doing in centering prayer, which is not renouncing thoughts.
0: Yeah, that is the we, biggest struggle, I think, when you're mm-hmm. when it's a new when you're first introduced to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so do you, when you, you,
1: your mind, you can't get it. it it's right. only when you're introduced to it in your moving center that you get it.
0: So when you do an introduction, uh, do you, you physically have people do these kind of yep. movements? Okay.
1: We yeah. practice with the gestures because I think it's only at the level of gesture that they get what yeah. centering is all about. And the That's language yeah. pretty much gets in the way. It it overcomplicates, and it winds up with people getting stuck in their heads sometimes for years, wondering if it's okay now to drop their sacred word.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I I can. I'm familiar with that. I'm I'm about two decades into the a practice myself, where I was introduced in college, luckily, um, and it's it's emerged and evolves in ways. But I I can see how, yeah. I, Uh, especially as a guy who, you know, kind of heady intellectual interests, (laughs) it's easy to get stuck there. Yeah. So for me, it was interesting. I, I really experienced something very powerful in terms of body energy when I encountered yoga and I had been doing centering prayer for probably 12, 13, 14 years, and then wandered into a yoga studio because I was into rock climbing and I Mm -hmm. wanted to be more flexible And then, all of a sudden, I was like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? It was...
1: The wisdom of moving center, and and I think that what Gurjeev brought up, it was so powerful, is he says the language of religious transcendence and transformation is conveyed in the moving center,
3: Mm. primarily.
1: And, you know, Christianity doesn't even talk about the moving center. To this day, they don't know what the moving center is. (laughs) And when you you work with a class of monastic tradition, the teaching is still about disembodiment. And -hmm. the idea is you go to spirit as you go away from the body without realizing what a dreadful mistake that is.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, and I'm, I've become more sympathetic probably because of my practice to the argument that certain expressions of the Christian tradition have become more platonic than genuinely incarnational. Yeah. uh, In any kind of, uh, way that Jesus himself would have embodied some exactly. of the practices.
1: Exactly. I mean, and it's, a, it's the it's the story of how the whole thing rolled through history, but it leaves mm. us with, uh, you know, Richard Rohr's marvelous uh, final comment that his theological professor told him, gentlemen, you must always remember that Christianity has been far more influenced by Plato than by Jesus
0: Christ. Yeah, well, that's the art. Yep, that's yeah. kind of what I was yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. The, uh,
1: and that's the wretched thing. And I, I still find teaching yeah. around the point of meditation is to make the body neutral and uh, and not an adequate understanding that it's only in the moving center that the heart of uh, what's being conveyed in religious transmission really touches home.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, if we, that, if we take the teaching of the incarnation seriously, then God certainly didn't find the body neutral. <laughs> but quite good, and maybe that's the way I'll express, one of the ways I'll express in the world.
1: Yeah, but I think it still is only Jesus, or it's only Gurdjieff who's actually seen the real implication of this, that so often we use yoga or tai chi or taekwondo or any of the great arts, qigong, as essentially auxiliary or complementary practices to our Christian life for more embodying Mm -hmm. Gurjeev took it one step closer and said that this is a system of intelligence, and this system of intelligence most closely approximates and provides the skills needed for a real transformative understanding of the great mysteries uh, of our, of our being, such as oblation, adoration, surrender, uh, you know, well, those are the three biggies, and even to a sense radical compassion. Yeah. And that you can't even carry compassion in the emotional center because until it's grounded in the body, it's too airy. It it just gets bubbly and dissipates.
0: Okay, good. I was already thinking about going in that direction um, because I'm, I want to hear more about how you think about the relationship between the contemplative transformation and compassion. I think, I'll admit even for myself, I'm a little stuck in those as almost binaries. Mm-hmm. This came up in our gathering. With the contemplative exchange in Snowmass, a little bit. If there was some resistance, like, well, if if you're moving too much into action, even if it's compassionate action, you're not being contemplative enough. Uh, you're you're getting trapped in the in the need to become an activist or something. And I I have this sense about that as a false dichotomy, but I'm I'm still myself kind of searching for a language to articulate that. So it sounds like you. I've given this some thought.
1: <laughs> I think it's a totally false dichotomy that, that, that grows out of really regarding contemplation as a quiet lifestyle
3: mm-hmm.
1: and, 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 and confusing equanimity with non-involvement.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but what really happens, I believe, is that when you sit in the depth of your heart, that the experience as you're sitting there, uh, the vibrational field that is encountered is intimacy. And it becomes very, very amazing. I'm sure it's happened to you if you've been at Centering Prayer for 20 years, that sometimes you sit there in the midst of it and you sense that you're in this almost warm, golden tenderness that you can't
3: Mm -hmm. explain
1: what it is. Yeah. And when you learn to move into the region of the chest by sensation, not by story or emotion, but by just... Concentrating your attention and bringing it into the region of the heart, which is how the orthodox masters used to talk about it very specifically. Of the heart, yeah. yeah. What you find is this fire of intimacy that begins to burn there. And the experience of intimacy is the inner dimension of what turned outward is compassion. Mm. So it's the inner and they're unbroken. You can't have one Amen. without you. Yeah.
2: that. Yeah
1: that the intimacy of the divine presence is the compassion as it extends out into the world. Mm. So, uh, and, and it is impartial. It is, you know, it, it's very, very, very different from social action that that's based on sort of old Testament judgmental models that say these people are wrong, you know, it, because it doesn't, it, it doesn't form polarizations.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's it just like, like Jesus saying, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do," it, it senses the radical uh, tragedy uh, created by the, our short-sightedness and, and and misperception of scarcity, and and so it sees the violence, it holds the violence, but it's not trying to uh, to counter things with a different position. Mm-hmm. It acts because that's what compassion does. Mm. So. I think the fact that the unbreakable connection between intimacy and compassion has not been seen uh, is a pretty strong sign that there's something significantly flawed in our understanding of contemplation today yeah. and are trying to recapture it and package it in the world and I see so much of it being in a pious quiet lifestyle I I have lots of people who in the living school when we ask them to read a text that's got any bite in it, we'd say, well, you're destroying my contemplation.
0: Yeah, uh, well, that's kind if, of what I ex- we experienced it in Colorado yeah, a little like, bit. Yeah.
1: That's not contemplation. That's self-calming. Yeah. Uh, they're a whole different thing, but we let people get away with that nonsense.
2: Yeah. And
1: until we do, we're doing uh, the planet no service. There's yeah. a radical difference between contemplative engagement and, and, and activism from uh, other points of view.
0: Yeah. Huh. Wow. That, that, I mean, that's just, I'm going to be chewing on this for a long time. That speaks to a lot of the questions that I'm just wrestling with right now. I like, um, it strikes me as potentially helpful to, I like how you talked about it as intimacy expressing itself as opposed Mm -hmm. to maybe getting stuck in what's become a dichotomy of contemplation and action.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. But
0: it's, it's, uh, it's the flow of the same energy
1: the same dynamism it's just one is from the inside and the other is from the outside
0: yeah huh yeah wow okay um i wanted to ask you i so you talked about both uh being exposed to centering prayer through thomas keating and then spending time studying with a, a hermit at snowmass now w- which of those was first <laughs> in um, temporally anyways
1: centering prayer came first okay I, came first. I went okay. out there like many, many people, to take the 10-day formation retreat mm-hmm. in uh, May of 1990. I took my first 10-day intensive, and then I came back the following December to take what was then called presenter's training. Yeah, uh,
2: okay, yeah.
1: And it was at that second meeting that I met the, the monk, who was the monastery hermit, and hermit plumber, because the <laughs> shower drain froze in the quarters we were staying in in December, and he came out to thaw it out. Oh, that was and nice. I, I cottoned on pretty fast to the fact that he actually knew something
3: mm. that,
1: uh, you know, I had been those years and the work hadn't been misspent because you could pick right up when somebody had being.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And,
1: uh, so, so
0: we kind of, yeah. it. had time as a, did you ever spend time as a priest in a parish kind of before some of this?
1: Became? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I never had my own parish. I was always a associate where I was doing the, educational programs and things like that. But yeah. on and off, I've had probably about a, de- a decade of experience in parish priesthood.
0: Okay. Uh, I was just curious about that. But um, to go back to so your exposure to Centering Prayer, um, now were you, I don't know, there's there's folklore out there <laughs> that, I, that I've picked up on. Um, were you at one of the kind of early retreats where the practice was sort of being rediscovered and um, in its contemporary form out of the cloud of unknowing and, and cash in and those other texts.
1: I was not at the earliest level. Okay. The the earliest, the earliest people who came were really the lava crew. Uh, okay. And there's some of Pat Johnson and some of the people that are still around form their bonds. And I was in considerably after that first, uh, first bit where they already pretty much had the system. Thomas was pretty much putting the fine touches on his human condition teaching by then. Uh, so I was a little further along in the pipeline.
0: Okay. So what was that experience like for you, uh, in terms of informing your day-to-day practice?
1: The, the experience of being at the intensive at Snowmass?
0: Yeah. And maybe, you know, the, the, the particular method as Thomas teaches it, um, because i'm I'm assuming well, maybe a better question to start would be what was your practice like on kind of a day to day level maybe before that exposure, and what's it like now kind of post <laughs>
1: well, it was uh, I would say that learning the uh the non conceptual or the non non directed attention method of centering prayer was quite a contrast after having worked in the in the Gurdjieff work so long where everything was about holding attention under voluntary control. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what do you do with your attention? Yeah. And uh, at one point Thomas even said to me, well, maybe you should give up and go to, go to Christian meditation where they'll help you with your attention more, you know? And uh, so he was, he almost
0: paradox because it it Mm -hmm. sounds like the earlier work you were doing was focused on attention and trying to direct it. And then the yeah. centering prayer is more of an open awareness kind of
1: yeah, approach. or not even an open awareness because when you're aware you're already moving too slow I mean you're uh, it's a it's a sort of open surrender, yeah and when I finally recognized what they were trying to do, it was a Bruno Barnhart, the abbot at Big Sur uh, the Camal hermitage, mm-hmm. that actually helped me over that hurdle, and of course I I already had the reason centering prayer was so congenial from the first place, was it took me back to that that sort of effortless silence I knew from Quaker days.
2: Oh, uh, interesting. Where
1: I had uh, wow. automatically, as a kid, drifted into that zone that 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 one of my buddies nowadays calls mindlessness.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, you know, in other words, that simple presence without the interference of the mind, and yeah, I already knew it. So that, the problem I had in centering prayer was just trying to get the language that it was using to explain itself hooked up with the data bank that I already had in my life from childhood.
2: Mm -hmm. And once
1: that hookup happened, then it was fine because centering prayer has been always totally congruent to me. Yeah. Uh, The sense that you don't, there's nothing to do in there. You just sit down and you give it away repeatedly over and over and over that uh, practicing that gesture of release has been, uh, second nature. So, so I think like everybody who came there, when you do a 10 day retreat, at least for some, some time, uh, it sharpens up your daily practice. You really do get a little bit more serious about sitting in the morning and the evening.
2: Yeah. But I
1: was, I was already sitting in the morning and the evening because I'd been by then be, been a, an oblate at New about. Cabal- Commodely for several years. And so I followed their practice of chanting the office with them and then sitting in silence. Uh, So centering prayer just put a little bit more of an intentional methodology into what I was doing anyway.
0: Okay. Wow. So now today, um, you know, what's your kind of daily? I know. So right now you're at your hermitage in Maine. Um, and then you spend some time in New Mexico at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I don't know how much it's divided at this point, but what's what's your daily practice? Are you sticking to that twenty minutes twice a day? Are there other aspects of it that?
1: Well, you know that as you go on and as you get formed in things. Uh, Time more and more exposes itself for the artificial construct it is
3: mm-hmm. and
1: so the idea of sitting down with a timer for twenty minutes twice a day just seems anathema to me mm. uh, but because God isn't measured out in those kind of doses yeah but it takes a while to get to that so my day my day begins uh, with coffee and prayer uh, <laughs> and I sit down and uh, it's a time of uh, of you know chanting the psalms uh some sort of formal centering prayer that gives way to kind of more open-minded reflection what my teacher rafe at the monastery used to call the morning setting <laughs> and then the evening um, is basically sorry. the same way uh that you know there comes a time in the day when the when the computer goes off and there's never any tv in the evening it's uh you know these are the ends of the day and uh you give yourself back into it uh, with the centering prayer transitioning uh but i don't even consider it practice it's uh it's at this point not practice but the concert
0: oh i like that i like that a lot part of the tapestry of the day yeah
1: yeah Yeah. so it's it's very perform and then the days themselves can go as they do, and there's some periods where I'm sitting around tormenting myself by running around all over the planet.
3: Mm-hmm. And there are
1: some days when I'm sitting around and tormenting myself by trying to write three paragraphs in a book.
2: <laughs>
1: but the the torment has exactly the same feel and it all has to do with my restless nature.
2: Yeah. Right. So, yeah.
1: So that my real practice is just to try to stay present to what is on the plate, Uh, taking what I've contracted to do and trying to do it with a certain degree of, uh, you know, actually showing up Mm -hmm. and without judging and without saying, well, this is better than that, or this is taking me away from contemplative because it isn't, you know, only if contemplative is a bitsy bitsy lifestyle, as Thomas Burton once called it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you, I mean, you've been, you're fortunate to be in almost a a kind of quasi monastic setting. And I'm curious how, like when you're working with say people at the living school or doing a workshop where, um, you know, like right now I'm in the mid, I've got three young kids and a dog that has to be walked and a job that has to get done. (laughs) Um, so, and, and I, I totally agree with everything you said about, um, I particularly like the movement towards the the symphony versus the the practice or whatever. Um, But, you know, what, what kind of advice do you give to people who, um, you know, are really in the thick of it and yet I think really want to cultivate a a depth to their prayer life in in a contemplative way? Um, How do you kind of work with that uh, when you, when you do have alarms that are going to go off or jobs that you have to be at or practice kids up?
1: I think a lot of this has to do with we really have to rely on the communion of saints, that at the stage you're at, at your life, certain things have to happen.
3: Mm -hmm. And,
1: uh, you know, in the Gurdjieff work, one of the documents that I've most loved over the years is what he's called the five Oglagolnian strivings or the five fundamental goals that distinguish a a worthy human being, a human being Mm -hmm. who's really in the ballpark growing. And the first is essentially to be a good steward. To be able to have everything you have to provide for your family and your and your 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 being -being. Mm well-being, and that and that people were not permitted into the work who weren't responsible householders, Mm. because if you're a if you're a a leech in the physical life, you're going to be a leech in the spiritual life.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so. The idea is that as you're at a certain phase in your life doing the tasks which are primordially appointed, that you can draw strength, particularly from the prayer of people like Thomas and others out the monastery, who have made the grand sacrifice of wives, children, lives, livelihood, um, and are bearing the weight of of loneliness because of that at a certain Mm. level. Mm. And, and that your work feeds into them, and their work feeds into you. And as we move along the pipeline of life, uh, we're pulling, we're pouring from full to full collectively at all times. So my sense is that with that as a general picture. So you don't get feeling en- envious and frustrated
2: Yeah.
1: that if, you, if we can then break down this, this completely superficial and I think destructive idea that contemplation is a lifestyle founded on gobs of silence and remote gorgeous places, <laughs> uh, if, if we can get beyond that and say that contemplation is really a moment to moment awareness and surrender at a deeper level then the amount of practice you do is the amount of practice that can maintain you at the minimum that allows you to be present hmm. and alertly looking for the points that will provide a little bit more spaciousness on your in your schedule but not thinking that they're going to be filling up your barrel that life is going to drain down
2: yeah, uh, yeah.
1: because mindfulness is what keeps the barrel from draining down not contemplation at yeah. least contemplation understood it. And so that present, yielded, alert, flexible uh, uh, willingness to engage your life where it is, is the contemplative attitude.
3: Mm.
1: Wow. And I would say just treasure it at every age of your life that you're at. Yeah. Realizing it's manifesting as differently as the leaves on the tree in each season. Mm. But it's the same tree and the same leaves ultimately.
0: Mm. Wow yeah well i mean you're yeah you're providing a lot of helpful <laughs> ways of thinking about this that I think are shattering a lot of the the dichotomies that even even as somebody who tries to to live and teach this, I feel like I get stuck in so
1: well, you know uh Jim Finley, our wonderful third person on our living school faculty, uh took up this this very issue with uh Bree Stoner, who I'm sure you know from the
2: yeah. Conference.
1: yeah. And she was complaining about how do I meditate when uh, when my my one year old and my four year old are bouncing into my lap? And Jim responds in Jim's way. Well, God loves you so much and so much wants to send you His love that He sends your children flying into your lap.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're you're echoing something almost verbatim that Richard said to me last week too, yeah. which is you know. Uh, we were, well, we couched it more in terms of Enneagram language, but, uh, um, yeah, that's beautiful.
2: Uh, yeah.
1: Just, just live every moment in every station of your life with confidence and plenitude uh, and curiosity about what it unfolds, and it'll be fine.
0: Oh, man, it sounds so easy when you say it.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> go back to
0: my, Yeah. Oh, that's... But
1: I, I really think seriously, Tom, that the uh, that the the first generation of the contemplative tradition is about at end. That it came to us via the monastic tradition,
2: yeah. which
1: is celibate, which is uh, enclosed, uh, which is separatist in some deep way, and which is fundamentally and I think terminally disembodied.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's the transmission that we've received. Yeah. And. And these courageous people that you sat with, like Lawrence and Thomas and Richard and Tilden, uh, had the guts to take it out into the world and offer it not just as a top-down training, but as a dialogical training. Yeah. I think it's in the second generation that's going to be really important for the lay people to take it and tease it gently away from its monastic underpinnings, being able to sort out with just extreme delicacy what is foundational and what is merely uh, part of the, uh, the monastic style, hmm. and, and bring in a truly engaged and embodied contemplation uh, with radical new definitions that has some interest beyond the white European cultural ghetto.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. this is another piece that that I think yeah. a lot of us are wrestling with.
1: Um, well, and with good reason, because the reason that you only see old white people at contemplative gatherings is because we've really set up an old white cultural art form. Yeah. And, and until we really learn to move beyond that, thinking that it's not just about communications, how do we get the word out to the people of color? To the you know,
2: it's yeah. not about
1: that at all. It's the thought structures are ethnocentric, Eurocentric platonic at the moment and until those thought shift structures are shifted to a deeper understanding of what contemplation is we're just going to continue to be attracting the same dying gene pool.
0: Hmm. Wow so you're tying together two thre- two threads that I've been wanting to come back to right in, in one thought there and, and one of them has to do with that question about uh, I think broadening our perspective of what counts as contemplation and then who's engaged in it um and that kind of touches on the solidarity that emerges out of the experience um with you know the the human condition and all of its expressions <laughs> mm-hmm. um so i don't know if you if that's if that idea strikes any chords with you and then i'll come back to the other one that I've still got it in
1: mind but. well yeah because you see as I've as I've shifted the, the, the center to contemplation being something that grows out as an actual change in the operating of system of perception that gradually fills in in a person as we manage to shift to a kind of 3 centered embodied perception with all three centers working and as we begin to realize the essence of contemplation is an open alert, Su- supple, flexible, present to the now in all its unimaginable horror and holiness. And as we begin to realize that, that then contemplation is about bringing some sort of a lightning rod that allows the damn thing to strike the ground, uh, right through <laughs> us, uh, mm. then, and as we get it away from sitting for so long in absolute silence, so you can't even flush a toilet while the meditation is going on, uh, That it has to be absolutely still, that there have to be mountains, that there has to be Gregorian chant in the background, uh, and that contemplatives don't have any social activism and don't sully their feet. As we move beyond that, then we're going to actually see that the whole world has been contemplating for a lot longer. The black uh, black slaves in this country would not have survived without contemplation. Mm
3: Mm-hmm
1: and you find the contemplation, you have only to turn on any of the spirituals and listen to the music and watch the liturgies of the church and you'll discover that they were crossing the bridge back and forth between the finite and the infinite as a matter of survival. Mm-hmm. And we simply don't recognize these as contemplative traditions because you don't see people sitting there in their slave <laughs> shackles on meditation cookers with right. a palm bell, hole you know. Right,
0: right. Yeah, but it, yeah, and then once you have that awareness, kind of maybe more historically, I think more and more people are trying to are waking up to the fact that that's also today that it's not just the people sitting on the cushion at the yoga studio or right. or even the Christians doing centering prayer in in that particular form
2: mm-hmm.
0: where it's occurring. Yeah, mm. and often it seems it's at those liminal places of survival that contemplation emerges
1: it can emerge
0: yeah yeah
1: it can emerge uh total trauma can also emerge a lot depends on whether something has already been planted the seed was planted by god but if the first sparks of it that allow the people to move beyond their complete identification with their psychological self Mm
3: -hmm. i.e
1: their narrative and their victimhood into understanding that there's something in each one of us that already lives beyond death and is already totally free and virgin and unviolent. And if we can touch that in ourselves, that's, that was the great gift to me when I was a child at Quaker meeting, because I learned to touch that repeatedly as a child. Yeah. And I, and now nobody instructed me in it, but I just knew it. I mean, it's self-instructing actually. Yeah. And because I could always make a distinction between my, myself with all its wants and needs and tragedies and hopes and this witnessing thing that was just quietly there, but always alive and free. And because I knew how to get to it, then I could kind of wriggle out a most, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that would really have toppled the oak tree, uh, if it had been more solidly rooted in the narrative self. Wow.
0: Yeah. What an amazing gift at such a young age. Hmm.
1: I think it's given to each child, but we don't, uh, we don't really in our in our religious education create the spaces where the children can nurture it themselves. We think we have to educate them. We think that uh, they have no previous experience with God, so we fill up their space with uh, with words and noise and ideas and concepts and don't show the simple self writing that goes on deep in the soul when there's uh, freedom and respect surrounding the encounter.
0: Mm. Wow. Kind of one of those moments where the the, the meaning of, you know, Jesus' is teaching about becoming like little children. Yeah. Kind of it's in <laughs>
3: that nice. yep.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's something that we're asking my wife and I about, you know, how do we cultivate that religious experience or, or spiritual attentiveness within our own kids. And I mean what I take from what you just said is that we don't we actually don't. We just have to kind of get out of the way and allow it to
1: exactly maybe hurt certain things yeah expose them to what you love expose them to beauty and mystery I took my little daughter, she was she was ten and she was with me the year that we were at the ecumenical fellowship at you know uh, you know, at Saint John's. And oh, she yeah. remembers the luminaria bags on Christmas Eve and the light lighting the way up to the Abbey church oh, and, yeah. the, and the great thunderous German singing and the spell of the incense, all those things are just a lifetime of experiences and because nobody tried to interpret it out to her at a simplistic level. She just has them as mystery. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And to be able to go back to that. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. So the other, the other thread that I was wanting to come back to, and you've, you've touched on it a bunch of different times in slightly different ways, but I've also, you know, heard or read things you've talked about in terms of non-duality. Even early on, I kind of mentioned right brain, left brain, and you quickly, you know, move to something less dichotomous. Yeah. So, I don't know, how do, you, how do you experience or work with, with that kind of um, different way of being present to your experience? How, would you, how do you teach that or talk about it?
1: Well, I come back to three-brained, three-brained awareness, uh, first of all. And the big, the big sort of boot camp training I got in the Gurdjieff work was they kept saying, where are your feet? Mm. And I would be flying away on some great metaphysical jag and they say, and where are your feet right now? (laughs) And little by little, I had to learn to pay attention. I had to learn the whole art of sensing. I didn't even know what sensing was. I thought it was a synonym for feeling. Uh Uh, And uh, so the whole art of sensation I had to learn. And then gradually, too, the, the Eastern Orthodox have been insistent from the start. But it's not about right brain left brain it's about the mind and the heart or in other words the whole intellectual system of the brain both right brain and left brain folding in and coming into embodied entrainment with the with a, the system of perception centered in heart chest solar plexus so that you really it's like sort of getting a complete and total upgrade of your computer like jumping five operating systems <laughs> yeah and, and with brain and heart uh, you're able to run a program of perception that doesn't perceive by differentiation,
2: yeah. but
1: that it perceives like a symphonic conductor who can hear the whole orchestra with every one of the instruments and all its particularity, but making a single sonic texture.
3: Mm.
1: And uh, it's a very, very different operating system from the, from the one of the mind. And most of our maps of, of, uh, of levels of consciousness still sort of assume that it's the mind that's, that's climbing the levels without realizing that the, the, the Christian Orthodox particularly tradition has been very explicit that until the mind is in the heart, the ceiling that you can get to really is what Ken Wilber would call the integral States that Mm. you can't do non-dual until the mind is in the heart because you're running an operating system that makes the goal you're aiming at physically impossible. Mm, wow. If you're perceiving by differentiating, you're going to be running a dualistic program. Yeah. Uh, and your sense of self is going to be the finite self. And so it's only as you begin to steal the attention or plug the energy leaks that if things are running out into story, into gossip, into reactions, and uh, uh, gather the attentiveness of the being in the region of the chest, grounded in sensation and the deepening sense of the whole bodily structure holding you up, that then you sort of effortlessly step forward into seeing in a whole different way. Mm. Uh, And for me, that's the non-dual awakening, but it's very different from the mystical moment. It's not about all of a sudden seeing, Oh, it's all one. You see from oneness, And it's not all one. It's a thousand colors and a myriad different shapes and a, a billion particularities, but it's all held in a deeper transfiguring union. And, uh, that you see with the mind and the heart huh. and until you put the mind in the heart you don't see it yeah oh, yeah, it yeah End don't lecture <laughs> yeah No, no
0: not um so do you do you see that awakening from one as distinct from sort of the maybe the classic mystical descriptions of awakening to divine presence or however you want to put it
1: well i think the mystical experiences are trailers for sure and they, they are very strong forte. of so what will happen? Uh, but I think the awakening is gradual and incremental in most people and often yeah. very non-dramatic. Um, yeah. you know, you just gradually see from a different way. Uh, Helen Luke talks about this brilliantly in her book, Old Age, okay. where a lot of this stuff just sort of life does it to you anyway. Uh, <laughs> but if you kind of get with the program earlier on, you can, uh, Cooperate with it and lead into it a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, and if you're exposed to some great teachers like you were, that
1: <laughs> yeah, helps well, along the way, I so. was pretty lucky. The 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 you know I've had a handful, like maybe four or five, just really stunning teachers that that helped me see this. Rafe being the you know the master of all masters in my case, hmm. uh, the hermit monk. But there have been several others: Bruno Barnhart at the monastery, Beatrice Bruto. And a couple of teachers in the work in Toronto who just took time with me and just sort of patiently knocked the rough edges off me, uh, you know, lovingly and firmly so that uh, I finally got what I was doing wrong. I never I never got what was wrong, why people weren't liking me, why, it, you know, why I was my own worst enemy. And they let me see why.
0: Mm. So that's interesting. I, hard to imagine you, I don't think of you as a non-likeable person. <laughs> yeah, have, have you you've softened a little bit, or on the edges, perhaps?
1: Well, it was basically that you know I can still get into a damn good metaphysical rant, but mm. it was uh, it was the sort of tunnel vision nature of the attention that's offensive much more than the uh, the just the fact that I was not when I was when I was doing my idea. I was not globally present to everything else that was going on with me in the field, including people's responses, the birds building a nest, the the sun gradually slink, sinking over the horizon as it is now, uh, all of this stuff, because my mind just went like, you know, like blinders on. Yeah. And in that state, the mind is always going to be offensive to other minds, because it feels like it's trying to uh, push an agenda.
0: mm, Wow. That reminds me of there's a yoga sutra and i I'm, i don 't know if I can do it verbatim from memory, but that when when a person is practiced and dwelling in ahimsa or nonviolence that all violence in, in that person's presence falls away
1: mm-hmm. yeah uh,
0: that's, that's
1: so. exactly that's exactly right, and that was the problem I was stuck in that I had been sending out mixed messages because i was i was passionate and brilliant and you know obviously hot on the trail or something but my my methods of orienting and perceiving and wielding attention were were frankly violent
3: mm. uh,
1: and so they left other people feeling silenced and diminished
0: interesting wow mm. i can see that in my own work right now it's interesting yeah It took
1: me 10 years to learn that you are responsible for your own manifestations. Not what you think you're putting out, but actually putting out. Yeah. And if you want to change in your life, you have to, you have to have the courage and the the training to be able to see and stomach what you're actually putting out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Huh. All right. Well, I have a I have a few more kind of like short fill in the blank questions that are.
1: Okay. Well, that'd be great because we are getting down to the end of the day, yeah, and I have exactly. to sleep the house all over the, the main night.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it? it's probably we're setting early. The
1: afternoon, and we're already getting towards sunset. It's I a, know.
0: It's that, <laughs> that time kind of, of a year. <laughs> <But anyway.
1: laughs>
0: so, how would you finish the sentence? Contemplation is.
1: Not for sissies. <laughs>
0: So i didn't see that coming all right um the the purpose of contemplation is all about
1: the purpose of contemplation is in the presence of a loving and compassionate and core and coherent divine presence to patiently and humbly strip away the veils that hide us from ourselves and hide the world from our sight hmm.
0: Hmm. All right. Is there a word or a phrase that sort of captures the heart of your own contemplative experience? Um, hmm.
1: Well, I was going to say wonder first hmm. off. Uh, that, uh, in a sense, uh, irony. In a kind of funny way, if you could take the meaning, meaning that uh, it's a really deeply pointed awareness of the every which wayness of everything, and that joy is in sadness, sadness is in joy, uh, that that everything is filled to bursting, uh, that would be my my kind of ballpark of contemplation.
0: Wow, would you? I don't want to put a word in your mouth, but is is that irony? Different from paradox?
1: Well, paradox would do fine. I mean, okay. it is a paradoxical
0: <laughs> I was but, thinking of uh is it Nicholas of Cusa's uh coincidencia oppositorum, the, the holding together yeah. of opposites.
1: Exactly. Well that would be a very good way of looking at it. That's certainly how it is for me. Hmm. And uh the biggest the biggest coincidence of opposites being the coincidence of the finite and the infinite.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: one of my favorite phrases is from Helen Luke's old age where she says, uh, holiness is born, uh, out of the, the accepting the struggle between the infinite and the finite in the human soul.
3: Mm. Wow. Mm.
1: And, uh, and that speaks to me really. And, and contemplation, one of the words I guess that would really come to me is honesty. Mm
3: -hmm. That
1: was really important for Rafe that it's about, it's, it's about, being able to to unveil and to move out from beyond the the things that the the stories the narratives the delusions we usually plug ourselves in mm-hmm. uh, in in order not to be enlightened just as a state but in order to better serve by better seeing
0: Mm-hmm. yeah it's that touching that freedom that's possible yeah. when you
1: because remember, there's no free lunch. A lot of the stuff is we think that we meditate, we get enlightenment, and then we live happily ever after. Yeah. But the very thing that allows the compassionate heart to open, that whole intimacy, compassion thing, compels you by its same opening uh, to be uh, on the bodhisattva path. You have to be uh, attuned to and alert to and finally at the service of the, the pain body of the planet
2: yeah wow
1: and if you're not willing to buy that enlightenment as a paid vacation in the Caribbean is not uh, not got much future in it
0: yeah well it looks good on your Facebook account but it doesn't really yeah. stick yeah right yeah.
1: <laughs> because, uh, remember the eye with which you see God is the eye with which God says is you said Meister Eckhart or something and the, mm. the eye which opens into the universal heart uh, feels at the same time the universal compassion
0: hmm well well. Dude, what is your hope or hopes for the next generation of contemplative practitioners?
1: Um somewhere along the along the lines of if you meet the Buddha, kill him. Uh
0: and how do you I've heard that so many times and I well, how would I mean, you interpret that?
1: I mean I think the next generation, uh really I I I would I hope they will, and I'm already seeing in the next generation that I, that I love, will fully embrace the, the freedom and the responsibility, uh, to wade through, uh, to do the sifting mm. that, that, that really, uh, uh, separates the trappings of the contemplative lifestyle from the foundation of a transmission of a seeing heart and to, to boldly create the delivery systems that uh, that speak to a world which is obviously hovering uh, on the brink of some abyss, and some would say we have abysses every hundred years or so. So, it, mm. but uh, obviously we are at some sort of a crisis point. Mm. And for me, the the synergy of contemplation is a powerful gift and an essential gift uh, to the to the whole chemical and alchemical well-being of the world. We need contemplative energy, we need contemplative spaciousness, we need vision, we need impartiality, we need passion, we need all of the above grounded in the contemplative witnessing presence. Mm-hmm. And and if the this this new generation can sep- separate form from substance in an intelligent and faithful way and discover what really is essential, uh, uh, and convey it with the same sort of fidelity that it's been received from, you know, a 2000 year lineage, at least in Christianity before it, uh, then I think we're good to go. (laughs)
0: Wow. Huh. All right. Uh, okay. So one more, um, that was a kind of open-ended question to contemplative practitioners. Do you have any hopes for the future of the Christian tradition or Christian contemplative tradition?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think think that the religions, the great axial religions are like colors in a rainbow, and it's not a survival of the fittest thing. They all sink together or they all swim together. Mm. And I think that Christianity contributes an essential, irreplaceable, valid perspective into the whole. And that it will continue again and again and again to reinvent and reform itself because its uh, its central light holder, Jesus, is alive and well, Mm. and continuing to reach out to the hearts of many, these you know, when they least expect it,
3: Mm. and
1: create out of these shards a new living vessel of his presence. So, I have no doubt it will continue as long as axial religion is in the way. I mean, we may at some point come to the end of all religions, and then it's a whole new ballpark. Yeah. but yeah but I think we're, I don't think that the secular defection of the Church of the Millennials is the same thing as the end of religion. Yeah. I think it's a just, just an appropriate response to the death of of uh, dinosaur art forms mm. and uh, but that the passion I find flowing through the heart of the millennial contemplatives, uh, you know, expressed a lot in the love for Teilhard and for music and for art and for, uh, I think it's the real deal flowing again. So I, I just say have at it, uh, take us, your seniors as, uh, as, uh, faithful missionaries and legates from the past mm. and carry it on toward the future.
0: Mm. Well, it's certainly not the past right now as you're sharing from your own wisdom and experience. So I am just internally grateful. Uh, I think I myself am going to have to digest this a few times, and I think that many listeners will as well. So just incredibly grateful for the time. Um, Thank you so much.
1: Terrific. And good luck with getting this thing posted wherever you're going to be posting it. Yeah.
0: It'll okay. get out there for sure and yeah.
1: Well let us know where it goes. And yeah. uh Wisdom Way of Knowing site would be delighted to pick it up if you want to just post it up there. That's I definitely
0: can send it. Uh maybe you can after we sign off, give me uh
1: I'll send you those notes yeah. yeah, okay Wonderful. terrific.
0: Well, enjoy your sunset contemplative evening. I can see it in the background there coming across yeah,
1: it's you can quite see it coming. striking.
0: Yeah,
1: it's taps time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> tap
1: time in Maine, so we'll see you.
0: All right. Thank you so That's much. Fun. Great right.
1: interview. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye.
0: Thanks again, everybody for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying listening as much as I am in recording and putting these together and finding some good inspiration for your own practice and uh, deepening of living with compassion and intention in the world. Once again, a reminder that if you are willing and able, please consider making a small donation at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate to help pay for the cost of these podcasts and appreciate your help in spreading the word. Stay tuned for more interviews coming in the near future. And in the meantime, may you be well and enjoy peace of mind.